0: So do you ever feel like the events of COVID-19 are just a dream? A dream is fictitious. It happens while you sleep, but it didn't really happen. And if a dream is really bad, we call it a nightmare. Sort of feels like what we're going through right now. I was watching the news recently. And as I did, I had this thought to myself, this isn't real. This is a sci-fi movie. It's a dream. We're all going to wake up tomorrow and we're going to call our friends and we're going to meet for coffee in public at the coffee shop. Do you remember when we used to go to the movies? When we used to watch the kids play soccer? Do you remember when we used to go to church? When we used to shake hands with people? You might even put your hand on someone's shoulder to pray for them. Not now. Sure feels like a dream, doesn't it? Surreal. We're beginning a series today called Dream Again, and we planned this a long time ago, but I think it's really relevant to what's happening in our world today. See, we're talking about a dream, not something that happens in our sleep so much, but a preferred picture of the future. A dream is to imagine something that you don't possess right now, but you can see it off in the, off in the distance. You dream about it. And I think that's why these days are so hard for us. You see, this is not what we dream about, this kind of life. We dream of something better, something different. A nurse doesn't dream of, her profession one day and uh, being a caregiver who's exhausted and in the midst of chaos she dreams of being able to give self or care to her patients with diligence and with, with intention that can be personal she doesn't dream of making choices between life and death she dreams of saving life not having to look at a number of vent- ventilators that aren't enough and having to choose with doctors who gets to live and who has to die. So many young girls dream of their wedding day, and when they do, they they dream of a day when friends and family, everybody from near and far congregate together, they press flesh, they hug one another, they dance together, they celebrate together, they eat food together. They don't dream of this, a day where maybe there's only a couple of family and onlookers looking on from a screen somewhere because they can't get there There's a travel ban. No, she's dreamed of something better, something far more grand. I have a dream. That was a speech that still resonates in the world because it resonates in our hearts. You have a dream, I have a dream. Where did we get this bent to dream, to see a preferred future, to think about ways that something could be better? God, I think that God gave us a dream. I think that God dreams and we are designed to be part of his. You see that right in the beginning. Uh, Maybe we don't use the word dream, we might use a more theological term like vision or plan. But right from the beginning, God tasked mankind to multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. In other words, God created the world good, but man was to dream about how he could extend God's goodness to the rest of the earth and, and uh, to extrapolate, to fill the earth with family and culture and education. He was to dream about that and then put it into practice. And when man rebels and tarnishes and mars the dream, God doesn't give up on it. God gives another man a dream. A few chapters later, after Genesis chapter one, we get to chapter 13 and God comes and, and he gives another dream to a, to a man who probably had lost this particular dream. You see, he talks to a man named Abram who is older in life, 70s probably. And I'm sure that long ago, he and his wife had given up on the dream of having children. See, they were childless. But God comes to them and messes up his life. He says, I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Abraham, no doubt, had given up on the idea of having children. It had been a dead dream to them. But God comes and he wants Abraham to dream again. God also gave a dream to a man named Joseph. A young boy at the time, Joseph hadn't wanted this. And he told it to his family a dream about his mom and dad and his siblings bowing down to him his family taking the knee before him kids don't try that at home it won't probably go very well and it didn't go well for joseph it almost got him killed and oh what a delay from the beginning of the giving of the dream to when it's fulfilled in joseph's life do you have a dream have you ever had a hope picture of your life in its fullness that you are passionate about. Fast forward to the New Testament and we get to Matthew chapter 16. We're going to take a little more time there. In Matthew chapter 16 verse 13 sets the stage for us. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Caesarea Philippi is a Roman city about 40 kilometers north of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a very pagan place. There's lots of idolatry there, worship of God, such as Pan and Baal, even Caesar worship. And it's in this place that Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? The Son of Man was like code word for Jesus to refer to himself. So in essence, Jesus is asking his disciples, What does the street talk about me? Well, after his disciples replied to him and they say, you know, Jesus, people have a pretty high estimate of you, like one of the prophets. So Jesus turns to them and he asks them a question. But who do you say that I am? Can I just say, I think that is the most important question that you and I can ever answer. Who is Jesus? You see, when I look at the biblical record, I see that we have so marred and broken our relationship with God and one another that it is only in Jesus that our purpose, God's dream for us is restored. If we don't have Jesus in our life, we're gonna be constantly yearning for things to be made right. But you see, we were designed to be connected to him and only in Jesus will our dreams ever be fulfilled. Who do you say that I am? Well, we read in verse 16, Peter's gonna have a go at it. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. See, Peter was a Jew, and as a Jew, he, is, he knows what it means to be oppressed. We might feel in our current circumstances that our freedoms have been curtailed, but Peter would know what it's like to be a people group that are oppressed by another. He's a Jew. But also as a jew he carries this dream he carries this hope that one day as scripture prophesied a dream that god had given a messiah would come a deliverer a savior who would rescue and bring salvation to the nation of israel and so peter speaks it you are the christ that's the greek word for anointed it means messiah you are the one that our nation has been waiting for our hope our deliverer, our savior. But Peter's been walking with Jesus and he somehow recognizes that he's more than that. He's more than just anointed person. Somehow in Jesus, the divine is living in its fullness. You are the son of God. Boom, Messiah, son of God. When Peter says that, it's not like he's answering a question on a test at school and he gets a nice little check mark. This has colossal ramifications. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, Peter, for you have understood this, not by your own revelation, your own working, but because God the Father has revealed it to you. And based on this, Jesus says some amazing things to Peter. He changes his identity by giving him a new name. He changes his name from Simon to Peter, meaning rock. And out of that new identity, he begins to tell him about a new future. In verse 18, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. At the very core of Jesus' preferred future is the church. I will build my church. Hey, if you're a follower of Jesus and the church isn't really that important to you, you'll be missing out on the most important part of Jesus' vision of his dream for the future. I will build my church. Of all the things that Jesus could have talked about, he says, I will build my church. Now the word church is the Greek word ecclesia and it simply means assembly of people. If ever there was a time when we understand that the church is much more than a building, I think that time is now. If ever there was a time to appreciate gathering together as an assembly of people, because we can't do it now, I think that time is now. I will build my church, Jesus says, and I'll do it on this rock. Now that rock, Uh, is interpreted in different ways. Jesus was speaking, if you remember, in Caesarea Philippi, which was known for its hard rock. So what, what an appropriate place to speak this to Peter. But I'm sure Jesus had much more in mind than the church would be built at Caesarea Philippi. The rock either means the revelation that Peter has now understood that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, or the rock refers to Peter himself whom Jesus now calls Peter, the rock. And to sort of step aside from an argument that has divided the church for ages, let me say that I believe that scripture affirms both. You see, the scripture tells us very clearly that the foundation is first and primarily Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we read, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. The church begins with Jesus, it is established in Jesus, it is sustained in Jesus, it is empowered in Jesus, but it's also built on people. So in Ephesians 2, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. There's no uh, papal succession here, just that the church is going to be built upon those who confess Jesus. And Peter and the apostles were the first to do that and the church will then be built after that fact. And it's gonna be a pretty powerful organization. Jesus says, the gates of hell shall not prevail. Many understand that to mean that the demonic forces will not be able to resist the overtaking power of the church. Gates are defensive, and the church is going to conquer and be victorious. And Peter is going to play a prominent role in that. To him are going to be given the keys of the kingdom. Now this is a, rabb- a rabbinic term, which means that p- what Peter says, uh, will, he will give permission so things will be loosed and he will bind, which means he will say what is not permissible, things that are already bound and loosed in heaven. And we see Peter doing this on the day of Pentecost when he preached the gospel and 3,000 people heard what he had to say and believed in Jesus Christ and entered God's kingdom on that day. Peter had an amazing, prominent role in the church, and you have a role too. You see, God, it says, fitly frames us positions us into the church. Each one of us have a role to play. Oh, It may not be a a leadership gift like Peter had, but each of us are uniquely designed and called to fulfill a function and a role within the church. Some of us will have the gift of leadership. Others will have the gift of mercy. Some will have the gift and role of administration. Others will be teachers, and some will have a prophetic gift. All of it working together to be the church that Christ builds. So what's your role? What's your place? Where do you fit into that grand dream that Jesus has to build his church? You know, I'm sure it must have been exhilarating for Peter to hear what Jesus told him and the role he was gonna play in the church that Jesus would build. But things quickly went sideways for him. We read in verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Although Peter had rightly understood that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, he had not fully understood what all of that meant. Peter's dream of of Jesus would that Jesus would would overtake the roman authorities that there would be a political coup palm sunday was more of what peter would have in mind when jesus rode into jerusalem on a donkey and was welcomed by the throngs of people welcoming welcoming jesus as a king a king who would overthrow rome and reestablish israel not a death see here's the thing about our dreams the solution is not to stop dreaming, not to keep on believing, but to understand where are the places of my dreams that I've commingled my thoughts and my desires with the dream of God. Sometimes in North America, it's so easy to think that the American dream is God's dream, that it's all about more possessions, more stuff, more advancement, more fame, more this, more that. Very seldom is about dying but Jesus said, if you want to live, you got to die. You see, Jesus knew that he would need to go to the cross, that his message would not be well received, that the Savior's way was to go to the cross, suffer a brutal death. He knew he'd rise again so that those who believe in him could now be part of his church. He would die. The, the door of death would be that which actually ushered in the building of of his church. It was the beginning of the fulfillment of that dream. So where's your dream? And how is it? Is it died? Is it alive? Is there a commingling of what you want with what God wants? You see, I think there needs to be a sifting, there needs to be a purifying, and sometimes there needs to be a death so that God's dream can emerge pure within us. And that takes time. Oh, the purpose of delay. If you'll recall the story of Joseph, given this dream as a young boy, it was many, many years, years of disappointment, betrayal, imprisonment. We read in Psalm 105, his feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron until what he had said came to pass. The word of the Lord tested him. There was a delay. And in the process, Joseph was purified and ready for the calling, ready for the dream that God had for him to be a ruler in Egypt. God has a purpose when things take longer than we might want. Right now, you may think, oh, like there's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go. Like, where is God? And maybe even it seems sometimes that God is working in opposition to you. God's not wasting anything. He's still at work. In this time that we're in, God does some of his deepest work in times of testing and delay. I know this is a hard time for many of us. For some, you're a family and, you know, all the kids are home and it's like, feels like chaos. But maybe in this challenge, there's an opportunity. Maybe there's an opportunity to talk with each other, your children, and Discuss, what are your dreams? Like, what, what is birthed within you? What are you, What is the passions that are lurking within one and us? And how pure are those? And where have we commingled our own thoughts with that? And, and pray for one another and talk about it and call it out and begin to step out into those dreams that are God-given to you. For some of us, it's a challenge because we hate isolation and we're alone. And we have a lot of time on our hands. Maybe this is an opportune time an opportune time to spend time in solitude with God, to talk with him, to look at his word, and and to ask him, God, what is your dream for me? And maybe you already know, but you've allowed it to die. You you got hurt with it, and so you're not stepping out at it anymore. God, what's the dream? And where do you want me to step into it? We have an opportunity, and maybe we would like this coronavirus thing to be over and done with, you know, meet together as a church by Easter. That would be so nice. I'm with you. Like, I, I hate this, but maybe God is going to use this to do a deeper, deeper work and establish his dream and its purity within us. You know, as it was for Abraham, as it was for Joseph, as it was for Peter, God will, in time, show himself completely faithful. And some of us will experience the fulfillment of our dreams in this life some only in part and some only in the future the future when jesus calls his people together the whole church past present future all those who are in christ and unites them together you see jesus dream will be fulfilled nothing can stop it he will have a bride he will have a church he will have a precious, beautiful bride that he's going to bring together. Nothing can stop it. Every nail, every drop of sweat, every stain of blood has ensured that it is going to come to pass. We have a future. We have God's dream. And as we align ourselves with it, we can walk into it knowing that it is perfectly going to be fulfilled through our Lord Jesus Christ. We can. Dream again.